So, season three, uh, kind of. This is, for all intents and purposes, the beginning of season three. So we're going to kind of discuss the season three arc, the Zindi arc here. Now, this is rather frustrating for me because everyone knows the general broad strokes of what's happening, right? The show wasn't doing well, and there was this near-constant pressure that had been coming from certain members of the creative staff, notably Brandon Braga, uh, for years at this point, going as far back as about mid-Voyager-ish. And they were constantly trying to do this whole thing where, like, we want to do this long-term thing. We want to do string continuity. And I want to discuss this briefly. I know most of you who are watching this have already heard me discuss this, so please forgive me for the recap. There are many, many, many different types of continuity. There's background continuity, environmental continuity, character continuity, um, set, you know, setting continuity, all sorts of stuff like that. And Star Trek has dabbled in bits and pieces of all different types of continuity, even string continuity, which they only really did twice. Both times were over in Deep Space Nine. One for the Dominion arc, when they the Dominion took DS9, and one for the final few episodes. The whole point of string continuity is it is effectively one long episode. That's that's the idea. The events of one lead immediately into the next, lead immediately into the next. You could also think of it as each episode is a direct sequel to the previous episode. And the whole point is that it's all one big arc. You know, the Babylon 5 effect. Now, nowadays, this type of storytelling, especially in television, is way more common. We could argue about the whys and the specifics, and I've heard several different arguments about which show really popularized this within, you know, the geek culture realm, for lack of a better way to put it, because television in general has done string continuity before. I mean, soap operas, right? But it was really uncommon, and, you know, I, I was actually told I was wrong about this, and so I did more research and found out that, no, I was right, this is really uncommon, but mostly within geek circles, a lot of television executives and a lot of producers for many, many years were very anti-continuity for various reasons, some good and some not. But the idea of doing a true string continuity season, one whole season of this, this is new, at least for Star Trek. And the idea of doing this was very scary and very difficult and very problematic. Now, that being said, as I've said before, I've seen this stuff more than once, so I'm going to be walking into some more familiar territory Thank goodness. But having said that, even though I just spent this whole speech explaining what string continuity is, this isn't quite string continuity. This is more like a season-long arc, which has specific episodes that are string continuity. Because for whatever reason, and I don't know why, other than, I mean, let me rephrase that. I can guess why. I can speculate why. I do not know why. There's, as usual, my information on this show is extremely lacking. I mean, compare and contrast to the Season 3 TOS stuff, where I was just talking about all kinds of massive stuff that was going into that because there was so much information. In this case, it's like, nothing. <laughs> no, really, I, I have very little. There's like a couple of interviews by Braga, and that's kind of all I've got to go on. Anyways, the speculation here that I have is that they wanted to keep doing their X of the Week stuff. They wanted the Thread of the Week, the Alien of the Week, Romance of the Week. They wanted to keep having regular Trek shows in the middle of it. Now, I haven't gone through this season recently. So, by memory, you know, vague, you know, ill-defined terms, but by memory, that's a bad thing. 
in I, I mean there's nothing wrong with having you know random episodes that are whatever but i feel like in most cases they sort of detracted from the overall arc mostly because of the severity and seriousness of the arc remember this is about stopping aliens who have just launched a mass murdering millions dead attack on earth so why are we interrupting this to go do this one random jaunt kind of a deal right we'll see how it holds up with analysis mode on Either way, I do think this is a good move, although, honestly, I think the Season 4 mentality works a little bit better. But we'll get to that when we get to that. What's funny is they made this episode. Paramount was like, man, this show ain't doing so hot. <laughs> it's, it's not great. It's not impressive. Um, so we're going to chop you back a little bit. And they axed several episodes. So you notice Season 3 is actually shorter than the typical television series at the time. And shorter than Season 1 and Season 2 were. Not a good sign. They did approve of several budget shifts that were very hard fought for, mostly in the special effects department. I know that sounds strange saying that now, since nowadays some of these effects probably look laughable, and this is being done alongside Battlestar Galactica, which is managing much more impressive practical effects in most cases. But this was still impressive for the time, and they were trying to push what they could do with it in many ways. Whether that is a good result or a bad result, that's up to you. But they really wanted to try and show the stakes of this. I don't know when it's going live relative to this. I've already recorded my Star Wars Rogue One rumination, um, which is going to be one of the early 2022 ruminations. God, that's a weird thought. <laughs> I record stuff way too far in advance. Anyways, one of the things I mentioned there was the power of being able to actually show something. If you say something, we can get it, we can acknowledge it, we can process it, it can have impact, but it will never have quite the same impact as actually showing it. Uh, in this specific instance, I refer to this as the destruction of Jeddah over in Star Wars Rogue One, if you want to know the specific scene. Because actually being able to properly show it has tremendous additional impact. This is the thing that they were going for with Enterprise Season 3. And again, we'll see if they succeed or not. But... To use the analogy I used back in that rumination, if you have a really excellent script with a great director and great actors, and you're, you're telling a story on a stage play, like a, like a school stage, with bad acoustics and no props, or, ver or props that are made of like cardboard and paper, it may be an amazing story. It may be something you can enjoy. But there's always going to be that asterisk there, Right? We take so much input, especially visually and audibly, that presenting both excellently just changes the nature of it, right? So again, we'll see if they manage it with Enterprise Season 3. But this episode in particular was taking advantage of that new budget bump, as is the next one. We'll be talking about that when we get there, of course. And it was so taking advantage of it, they actually had to cut scenes just for time. Now, they, these scenes were actually in the, the version I was watching. It's the bit where Archer tries to reconnect with Becky, who will never be seen again. Probably because it was a cut scene. And Sato, Hoshi, she's like, uh, hey, Sato. Hey, I'm totally leaving. Nah, I'm just kidding. She's actually staying with the crew. That close to a character moment for someone who, remember, is out of character moments. She won't really have any major moments for the rest of the show. That's neat. Whatever. Now, this is a Berman Braga script, and it shows in good and bad ways. 
and Croker was the director, and it shows. We'll be seeing more of him in the future. I've talked about him before. He's a very long-term veteran uh, Star Trek director and has done stuff across Voyager, DS9, and uh, Enterprise. And he's still going to be doing stuff in the future. Several of the better Season 3 episodes will be handled under his helm. So he manages to pull a lot of good stuff into several scenes. Awesome. The next thing I want to talk about, though, is the intro song. Now, it's actually going to be changed, I think, next episode. I'm going to pay attention to it. But I made a deal with a viewer of mine. If you're out there, you know who you are. And, I mean, viewer, it sounds like a weird thing. He's, 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 a, he's a pal. I, I hate to call him a friend because, you know, I, I like to use friend as a more demonstrative of... Let me just shove my foot further in here. There's a dude who uh, asked me to go ahead and watch the intro song. And uh, the compromise, he wanted me to do it through all four seasons. The compromise I made was, tell you what, two seasons. I'll give you two seasons. He's like, okay. So I watched, I, I have actually, for every single one of these ruminations, I don't remember if I've said this before, but I have been watching and listening to that goddamn intro song every single time. And if my tone doesn't get it across, I hate it more than I ever have. It was like grating on my ears every time I watched this. And I kept reaching for the skip button, or the fast-forward button, rather. And it's, no, no. Said I would. Man of my word. Just going to live with it. I'm sorry for sounding so aggravated. Because you're probably thinking, Laura, you're being exaggerative. It's not that bad of a song. It probably isn't. But if you have to listen to two solid seasons of it effectively in a row, yeah, it gets a little bit old. It's the rock and the shoe problem. It's it, it, And just like the rock and the shoe, people look at you weird when you complain about such a minor little thing. But it's the repetition that made it bad. Although I don't like the song to begin with. I still stand by my statement very firmly that just using Archer's theme, which a remix of which plays at the very beginning of these very ruminations, would have been much better for the intro crawl. What do you all think? Any thoughts, comments, questions, hatreds, violent rages, death threats? Bring on the death threats. I've only gotten a couple of those so far. Now, I already talked about string continuity, um, so let's talk about the episode proper. Hell of a way to do a cold open. Probe comes in and destroys a huge chunk of Florida leading down into Venezuela and then leaves. Cut to credits. That is one of the best cold opens um, in Trek history, and I mean that with sincerity. It immediately grasps your attention, and even if you don't recognize Florida there, or Earth for that matter, it's still an attention-grabbing moment. Massive devastation showing the destruction on a grand scale, blah, 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 right? It's awesome and great and gets your attention, and it's our very first hook. We should keep track of these. So our first hook is this weapon, the Zindi, put simply. Okay, that's awesome. So now we have all of these what-ifs and questions that are prompted that aren't even answered in this episode. This is another benefit of arcs and string continuity, uh, both generally and specifically. Because when you have arcs, you don't have to answer questions in the episode. You can answer them later. Now, there's other forms of continuity you can do this with as well. But you see how this automatically allows you to set up things that you know will be paid off later. Forgive me for gushing, but you know me in continuity. Anyways, so... All right, that's a great cold open. Let's talk about why it's stupid. First of all, the geography on display is wrong in like five or six different ways. I really, based on all of the, the things which are wrong with the geography, what I really feel like happened is we just had a miscommunication between the writing team who was writing the dialogue that would reference the event and the actual CGI team that was actually making the cold open, the intro with the weapon probe slicing down Florida. 
Now, I'm not going to nitpick every single one, but again, there's lots of things wrong with what they say versus what we are shown. And again, it's probably a miscommunication. The other problem is, well, this is stupid. This is where Braga really kind of shows his chops, if you'll forgive me. No offense to the man, really, but a lot of his stories lack grounding or logic, and so most of them tend to fall apart the more you think about them. This is one of the reasons why so many of his best stories, in my opinion, have had another story writer who has been able to help ground him and his ideas and try to make them expressed better, right? A good team writer. I've talked about this several times before, even on the Voyager stuff. So, with Berman being the one grounded, well, we know, we know Berman. We've all talked about that. There's, there's no writing capacity there. So, that makes this effectively just a Braga script, and here we are. Now, why is this so stupid? All right, picture this. You have just found out that those people over there in, in the next apartment over or house over, wherever you live, right across the street, they're, they're over there. And, okay, it might be a little bit further away, but whatever, just bear with me for the analogy. They're going to wipe out you and everyone about you, you know, in the future. And you find this out from your future self. Your future self is like, oh, my gosh. And naturally, you trust your future self. So it's like, okay, well, in order to deal with this, I'm going to build a weapon to go destroy their house. And that way they'll be destroyed. And that way I'll be fine in the future, you know, hundreds of years from now. Okay, cool. Great idea. But you know what? I need to test this thing first. So I'm going to send a probe over there to test whether or not it works at all. Do you see all of the problems with this? Number one, why not test it on, oh, I don't know, any other planet rather than the target of your actual attack? Number two, the most obvious thing, you were giving them a warning, whereas previously they had none. They, if, if they had not sent this probe, they could have just sent the weapon, and it would show it up, and that would be the game. Ah, and Earth is gone. <laughs> you know? Now, the novelization actually tried to make some sense of this by saying, oh, it was intended to destroy the planet. It just failed because... But that, again, leaves the question of why not test it first on something that isn't your actual target? Because, again, there is no tactical sense here whatsoever. No strategic sense, I should say, more accurately. Because all you're doing is declaring war. Like, okay, let me let me contrast this within this very episode. During this episode, skipping ahead a bit, Duras comes out and ambushes them. Now, he alpha strikes right out the gate and, and pastes the NX-01. And they're on the verge of being destroyed and boarded in order to have Archer captured. Okay. The only reason they survive is because some allies happen to be in the area and happen to show up in time to save them. Otherwise, he would have won. He did the correct strategy. Now imagine if what had happened instead was that he showed up, was like, alright, and fired a warning shot at the NX-01. Just this little plink. And I know, 7 million dead is not exactly a small thing, but consider the billions of lives and the scale at, at, and on display here. Imagine if his little warning shot killed one person on the NX-01, which even that is a huge exaggeration. So now the NX-01 knows he's here and has tons of time to deal with him. And this whole time, Duras is like, all right, get the weapons fired up and get ready. And the whole time, the NX-01 is capable of doing it. You see why that's a terrible, dumb decision, right? Now, I have some sympathy, because... The problem here, and this is Braga's wheelhouse and one of his big, greatest flaws as a writer, is he's an idea writer. He, he comes up with great what-if scenarios, you know, like, like Pixar, which I've been covering lately. Um, so he, he starts with the what-if, 
and he runs with it. And there's some cool ideas there and cool concepts there that make less sense the more you think about them, because he didn't think about them. He's not a world builder, and he's not one who, who adheres to internal continuity or logic. So instead, what we have is the premise, which is a very strong premise. The NXO-1, which is their only big you know, Warp 5 capable ship. The Columbia is not going to be showing up for, what is it, 14 months? So they have the one ship, and they're going into a alien territory, setting up the environmental threat of the Expanse. That's two hooks, by the way. I know we're not there yet, but that is that is the second hook, is the Expanse itself. In, and it's a hostile territory where some kind of enemy that they know basically nothing about has sent a terrifying weapon to devastate and destroy. They don't even know about the actual weapon yet. They didn't even know that this was a test run. They just know that this was an attack. And so cut off alone in a massive hostile territory. Sounds a lot like Voyager, actually, doesn't it? And it's all on them to be able to stop the Zindi one way or the other, you know, no matter the cost, in order to try and save Earth and save humanity. It's a great premise, but you can see how hard that is to set up properly. Now, I do think we could set this up properly, and rather than give my ideas, I posit it to you. What would you do? How would you set this up so that they know about this without having to have the Zindi, you know, give everything away? All right. Now, here's the catch. It's relatively easy to rewrite the script to make that happen. It is. All you have to do... I, I said I wouldn't give my ideas, but I, I feel like this is worth talking about. All you have to do is have the information about the attack that is coming come from Future Guy. And he gives definitive proof that he is from the future. And there you go. So they're like, okay, well, they hem and they haw, and they decide, okay, we need to take this chance. We're going to send the only ship we have because it's the only ship we have. And it's this, the thing's going to launch in 10 months, so get out there. Or actually, it would be 20 months at this point, wouldn't it? No, it would be longer than that. Sorry, this episode occurs over the course of months. Literally months. Uh, it's it's actually a nice long episode in terms of timeline, and they mention this several times. You know, we've been traveling for seven weeks. You know that kind of thing. Uh, so, however long, Fig do the math, figure it out how long this episode is, and then the and the trip to the expanse, and then the time in the expanse. And I know that that's ten months within the expanse. So figure that out, and this is when it's going to launch. Go deal with it. And because it's so soon, and because the Vulcans aren't fully on board and are terrified of going in the Expanse and don't really trust the information anyways, it's all in the Enterprise. There you go. Bam. Done. What's the problem with this, this setup? Well, there's no big attack. There's no amazing hook with, you know, the, the, the cold open. Right? So that's gone. There's no millions dead, which, in addition to lacking some impact, also means that Trip is not going to have his personal character arc with their, their with which is a problem. And it also leaves us without the scar that is left as, as a visual reminder and the slowly increasing death count as they keep counting more and more to try and figure out what the heck actually happened. So how do you replace all of that impact while still keeping it so the Zindi don't actually attack while still making it so that this whole thing works, right? Now, again, I do have some ideas I'm going to keep my mouth shut on them because I, I, I kind of want to do stuff with that in the Trek Rewrite Project, but what would you do? All right, so moving on, moving on. <clears throat> Duras shows up. <laughs> you will die. <laughs> Funny, he's attacking within spitting distance of Sol, spatially speaking. I mean, they're, they're, you could see it as the brightest star in the sky. It's They're probably pretty close to it, relatively speaking. And uh, this, what's funny... This is, uh, 
I'm, hmm, I'm an idiot. I'm skipping ahead. Hang on. Let's rewind a second. Sorry, I was misreading my notes. So we find out there's an attack on Earth. We also find out that they're way out there, which, again, lots of time passes in this episode. So they zoom back at warp 5, just straight up warp 5, which says a lot by itself. And honestly, I, an attack on Earth is a long time in coming. Really. As I've said many, many times, this is the spatial Sengoku Jedi period. The only reason anybody hasn't attacked them before is because the Vulcans had their back. But eventually someone's going to provoke that. Eventually they're going to, some factions somewhere is finally going to say, all right, enough. And just go ahead and attack Earth. And the idea that this is the first attack on Earth in some time, which it is, historically speaking, unless we count TAS, which of course we don't, is um, interesting. And kind of very Star Trek, if I might be so bold. Now, we all know the actual impetus for this. This was in many ways founded on the ideas of the 9-11 attack. Um, now, I know 9-11 attack, blah, blah, blah. What I mean by that is what that hit uh, culturally here in the States. I don't know if this hit any other country. But in the States, it got across an idea that until then hadn't really been all that prevalent, at least in the way that we thought of ourselves and the way that, you know, the fiction was developed. Because fiction tends to follow real-life norms. I mean, there's a reason so much of fiction was altered by the Great War, and then World War II, and then the Cold War, right? And then Vietnam. It's a lot of wars, but you get my point. After 9-11, the idea, the core idea here is sudden, unexpected, devastating attack, lots of civilian casualties from a hostile force. That kind of... It's a shock value thing, but I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean like, no, 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 everyday life, everyday life, boom. And that was the idea that was being presented. And that was what inspired this entire season, actually. Uh, this is one of the things Braga did mention in one of his interviews, that that concept, that core nugget was what really caused all of this to happen. And he also knew from the beginning some of the plot twists I'm not going to spoil right now, because I know some of you are watching this for the first time with me, that we're going to be coming up. And that works, too, for reasons we'll discuss when we get there. But we have the attack. We have the nuke. Um, about a million dead. This uh, Trinir comes in. Sorry, Trip. Trinir nails this scene. He's a great actor in general. I love him. He comes in, and he starts off uh, trembling. He starts off trembling, and he loses it throughout the course of this scene, as he as he just starts to descend as he's talking about his sister, his baby sister, and he starts to open up about her to Archer. Right, pay attention, because right after he starts to open up, that's when T'Pol comes in, and he has to watch his face. He slams down all the masks, just tries to get a hold of himself. And then she mentions that they have some information from Vulcan High Command. He's like, did, did, did you have more information on where it is? Or where it hit? And she, and again, credit to Jolene Blaylock, she recognizes immediately that this is obviously a personal thing for him. In fact, it almost irritates me that Archer has to flat out say, this is where his sister was. I would have probably nixed that one line and just made T'Pol cognizant of what's going on because she has a freaking brain and she can recognize what's going on with Trip. And of course, Trip and her have been getting closer as friends throughout most of the series so far. That's actually something they show in this episode, so she probably knew about his sister. Then again, Archer didn't, so what the hell. Moving on. This then leads to the Cillabon showing up and effortlessly capturing Archer. Okay. This irritated me until I started to think about it. 
This probably wouldn't really work and would require much more forethought and much more planning than they did, but what if the Cillabon have just been toying with them this whole time? Like, what they've been facing has not actually been the full capacity and abilities of the Sulaban and the, the tech they are capable of doing, and the cloaking and the infiltration and yada yada. But they've been trying not to actually destroy Enterprise or really cause them any significant damage because, well, future guy is Archer, right? And so he wants them to mess with the Enterprise, but only in certain ways that provoke certain responses, not actually destroy or do defeat or anything like that. And then this time, well... Things are serious. I need to get hold of Archer. Get over there and get Archer. So they don't hold back, and they manage to grab him within seconds without even trying. Now, whether that works or not is up to you. Uh, it is worth noting that that would probably work better if this was something that would come up in the future. But while Silic will be present in the future, spoilers, this is the end of Future Guy. We will never see him again. And he gives the warning to Archer, which... Whatever. Um... This then leads to, by the way, you notice that's our first send-off. This is the end of Future Guy, and in many ways is going to be kind of leading to that particular end. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself. So then she's, uh, she, he, Archer, starts being really pissed off about this whole situation. Probably because he's effectively been handed a Cassandra truth with very little proof. Cover that in a moment. Uh, this then leads to Duras's ambush which I mentioned earlier, right next to Sol. And, you know, under, under normal circumstances, wouldn't this be a declaration of war? I mean, I guess the, the Federation, excuse me, EarthGov doesn't actually want war, so they wouldn't press the issue. And the Klingons would just think of this as an, an, a normal day in the life for a Klingon Empire, so this is just whatever. I mean, they're totally justified in what they're doing, right? Or they could be playing at politics. Oh, Duras was a rogue element. He, he was going against orders. We, we, can, we do not condone any of his actions on behalf of the Klingon Empire. Which is probably more accurate, given that he was already being given this last mission, because he had failed so many times and screw you. Now, this is important. They, the one relatively mid-tier Klingon bird, pastes the NX-01. Just crushes them. That's two times in a row they've been effortlessly defeated by some of their past villains. Hmm. Not a good sign. But, whatever. This then leads to a valuable little point. The visible scar going down Florida. I already talked about that and the impact of it. This also leads to them mentioning that it's going to be a three month trip at maximum warp just to reach the Delphic Expanse. And again, we see the scale of time in this episode. But we are now up to our third thing. So hang on, let's let's keep track here. So we've got, uh, God, what do we got? <sighs> let's not let's not do it that way. We'll come back to that later. I'll do it better because I've, I've lost track of which are in what order. But I do have a list here and we'll cover that in a minute. Anyways, this is when the Delphic Expanse is extended as... This is when this hook happens, because that's what this episode does. While the next episode is actually the pilot, and I'll talk about that later, this episode is two things, and it has to do these two things very importantly. First, it has to chop off a lot of older stories. That's why Duras is here. It's also why Future Guy was here. It also has to establish a lot of stuff so that these pre these hooks, these quest hooks, for lack of a better way to put it, are going to be present for the upcoming stuff. In other words, we need to establish all of the arcs that are going to be going throughout Season 3. All of this makes sense. Um, so, establish, establish, establish. Delphic Expanse is now the environmental threat. We know there's the enemy, that's the Zindi. We know there's the territory, that's the Delphic. We know that Tripp's sis uh, sister is dead, that's going to be his personal story. The Makos are mentioned here, that's going to be a thing. 
Um, we have the time travel thing. That's that's a thing. I'm just going to go and list them now, I suppose. Paul's going to have her thing, and Archer's going to have his thing. So that's seven hooks, which are all established right here in this episode to be paid off in future episodes. Good stuff. Now, I love how... How do I put this? This leads to um, a very small point. So he goes down, and he has to prove to Saval and Forrest, which we won't see him for quite some time, the, the validity of what Future Guy said. This is, in my opinion, the second weakest part of the episode. Someone from the future has told you stuff about the future. Now you have to ex- explain that to other people. So, how do you do that? I mean, I can tell you right now that I'm from the future. Hey, hey, my future self visited... This is a lie. My future self visited me last night and told me about all this amazing stuff and all this incredible stuff that's happening. Explain, explain, explain. But that doesn't mean anything. Now, you could argue that I am a, like, if I was to say that sincerely, that's why I prefaced that this is a lie, that if I was to argue that sincerely, that I am enough of a credible source that you might believe me on that basis. However, even if I am someone you trust in such a manner, you know, if you were someone who knew me personally, like my sister or something, there's still a decent chance that you wouldn't actually believe me. You would probably default to something that makes more sense, like, I've lost it, or I had a very vivid dream, or I've lost it in another way, or I've lost it in a third way. Or I'm just straight up lying, either as part of a joke or because I'm setting something up, right? All of those things are simply easier to believe than I actually got visited from the future, which obviously didn't happen. So you got to prove it. There's so many ways to prove it. There's so many ways to prove that you are a freaking time traveler. And there's so many ways to establish that. Many, many fictional stories have touched on this idea of how to prove that you are a time traveler. And in many cases, it's kind of an issue to explain it, but it usually gets over quickly because it's so easy to prove. Naturally, Future Guy tells him about one particular part which is in the past, and that's his thing. And they rely on what is effectively magic tech, not magitech, different thing, quantum dating. Now, quantum dating's always irritated me a little bit. It, this is not the last time it's going to show up in Star Trek, by the way. Because quantum dating tells you when something was made, or when something was out constructed, or whatever. You know, it, it tells you where its origin point is in time. It's the, the reason it irritates me isn't the believability of it, although that is a problem. It's more the fact that it's used as a narrative cheat. It is used as the evidence, the proof. Hey, look, this is from the future. Proof, and I don't need to prove anything else. (sighs) This also falls into another logic hole. Future Guy told Archer to look for stuff from the future. Okay. Future Guy told Archer this is from another faction that can only communicate back to the past and cannot send anything to the past. (sighs) Question. (laughs) You, 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 You skipped a step there, I think. So, anyways... Nitpicking aside, he proves, and this is the final way this irritates me, proving something is from the future with quantum dating is a very flimsy way of proving it. In fact, to be completely blunt, my opinion, it is the exact same type of proof as me saying I was visited from the future. Because it is coming from a trusted source that is being stated as sincere. But that does not preclude any of the other possibilities, including something being wrong with the device or something being faked here, or something being messed with, right? I mean, there's so many other ways this could be looked at other than this is actually from the future. Now, you could argue that, and I'm not going to argue it back. It's fine. It's just, this has always bugged me a little bit. Moving on. 
This then leads to the psychiatrist coming up to examine Archer and try to look into him and figure out what's up with him. This is a dumb scene. <laughs> I hate to keep... I like this episode, I do, but it, it's, it just is like, ugh, 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 like three times in a row. Because Soval could have done this legitimately. He had every availability and motive to send someone to have him examined psychiatrically. Instead, he sends someone in to lie about the, who he was, which doesn't is also unnecessary because they could have just said they could have altered the record slightly and said it was him, or they could have had him. God, I don't know. I can think of five other ways they could infiltrate this guy in here, but instead they sent this guy under a very obvious and easily accessible lie. Really easy to see through this lie. You know, like, you remember back in Voyager when Tom Paris was acting out and it was all part of a trick to, to make the, 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 uh, Seska and the Kazon think that he was actually a turncoat. Remember that? During that sequence, he made several open brazen lies that were specifically designed to be so brazen that they just show a lack of respect. And you could argue that Saval has a lack of respect for them, but this is actually stupid and is making it harder for him to get the information he wants. Just have a shrink evaluation. Done. That being said, I do like how livid Phlox is about the violation of medical ethics here. I'm really starting to think they're just wanting to ignore that episode ever happened, which, you know what, I'm okay with. So this then leads to Trip and Reed standing and staring at the chasm. Again, visual presentation. I think this looks decent for the time. I do have to add that asterisk for the time. And it's especially jarring having gone immediately, from my perspective, from the Pixar films to this. But it is still, nevertheless, pretty impressive for the time and for the budget. Remember, this is a television show that has had its budget slashed twice. So, okay, I'm with it. And it's horrible. It is absolutely horrible. This is when we find out that the NX-02 is 14 months out. And a very brief line happens. This is another of our hooks. you got to be comfortable with the military on board. I'm just going to roll my eyes at that and move on. I'm not even going to discuss it because I, I don't have anything to say to it. But the Makos, one way or another, and this can be argued many, many different ways, the Makos are definitively military. Ignoring the fact that they refer to them that as in-universe, they are a military structure with the military operations and here to accomplish military ends. They are military, no arguing this point. Unlike Starfleet, which I will at least acquiesce can be argued, you, you can't you can't push back on this one. But that's part of the point. A lot of this is not just hooks, although the Makos are a hook. Part of this is also to help establish the different tone. This is why this is all happening in Season 2, by the way. So that people know what's coming when Season 3 launches. Some of you may remember there was a big advert campaign about this time as well to advertise, you know, the whole new, this is what's going to be happening when it comes to Season 3 thing. I uh, will not speak to my personal experience on that one, but I know it was there. So, are you going to be comfortable with military on board? Eh. This then leads to to Paul. It's not my plan. It's not my place. Excuse me to disobey the high command. But you've done it before, and yeah, she has. <laughs> nice little continuity point there. But also helping to establish something that we'll be getting to uh, later on this very episode. This then leads to a very minor point. When the chips are down, the Denobulan. And the Vulcans stay on board. That's kind of the Star Trek thing right there, isn't it? You know, the, the IDIC, the, the fitting together despite the fact that we don't fit together. We're different, but that's okay. 
reunited, right? And I just point that out because I have heard it argued, and I would kind of agree with this idea, that this is actually the very beginning, the true very beginning of the Federation right here with Phlox and T'Pol deciding to stay with the ship, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So this then leads to Trip and Reed. There was a day of remembrance a couple of months ago. Little lines like this help to establish how much time passes in this episode. I know I've already said that, but again, it's it's worth repeating because they put the effort... I'm sorry, my nose itches like crazy. Oh my god. It's like I have a straight hair or something. They put a lot of effort into establishing just how much time has actually passed here so that we can get a, a visual, uh, excuse me, an audible representation because we certainly don't get a visual one. In fact, it's actually hard for me to believe how much time has passed in this episode because nothing indicates it other than the lines of dialogue. It is the Dragon Age 2 problem. Three years later, except it feels like the next day. And it is that all over the place. Moving on. Um, She's dead. So are seven million others. She was no more important than any of them. So just leave it alone. That's the beginning of Trip's arc. That's Trip's hook. And obviously now that he has a personal stake in this, we see that that's going to affect him going into the future. Another little side point while we're at it. Trenier, as usual, does a great job here. I don't know if this is up to the actor, the director, or both. But when the scene starts, when they're discussing the new photon torpedoes, hey, we finally got our first photon torpedoes. Uh, that is to say our first, you know, human federation. Or federation, Our first Starfleet photon torpedoes. When they're installing the brand new Mega Death torpedoes, which are way stronger than the previous ones because... I mean, as anybody who's actually thought about the science of the matter, photon torpedoes are actually really strong, but anyways. Um, so we're getting those, and he starts off blank. Trip is just kind of, uh-huh, okay. And as they talk, and as Reed tries to reach out to him like a friend, Trip gets angrier and angrier and angrier until it gets to the point where he actually loses his temper and yells at Reed. Now, Reed holds his ground, and understandably so, but then... The way Tucker deals with that is just interesting in its own right. And again, helping to establish the hook. So, this leans to the shot of the Vulcans who lose control. Believe it or not, this is another hook. This is kind of a combination hook. On the one hand, it's partially a hook for the Delphic Expanse itself. Because it's the first thing we see that actually helps to establish the threat of the Expanse. We hear about the Klingons turning inside out. Gross, by the way. And we hear about the ships that are lost. But this is the first time we see an actual consequence of the Expanse. So environmental threat established. It'll also be relevant for T'Pol. Now, this then leads to T'Pol and Saval having an argument on the matter. And then they go back up, and this is when we find out that the NX-01 has had severe retrof uh, retrofitting. Retrofitting? No, refitting. Sorry, refitting. Wrong word in order to try and get it up to code and up to standard. And that makes sense. It's been about two years since they've back, been back in Earth Dock. That's an exaggeration. But it's been a while. It has been a substantial amount of time. And they're already getting ready to launch the new NX, which they're currently in the middle of building, and they've probably developed a lot of new tech for it, especially given the current pace of technological advancement. So it makes sense. I mean, you've played Stellaris, right? All right, hang on. I've got a new type of Corvette. Bring the Corvettes back in so we can refit them and, and get them up to standard and up to code. It's also important because it helps to establish how the NX-01 is going to be capable of dealing with all the threats it's going to be coming up against by itself. This leads to, immediately, a very quiet and a scene that probably should be more powerful than it is. A lot of this episode I enjoy, but doesn't really have the impact it probably should. 
I think that's because it's more establishment than payoff, and I'm fine with that. And I think that's why I'm still okay with this episode, because, well, the payoff will come later, and the payoff wouldn't matter as much if not for this establishment. But we have the scene between Tucker and Archer. Neither of them are sleeping well. Archer is... This is actually when we see the beginning of Archer's arc. You know, I, I came out here to be an explorer, and then all of a sudden we kept running into bad guys, and I had to take care of the lives of 83 people. And now, way to the world. And you see how he's not handling that well. Again, nothing's actually being done with that yet, but that is Archer's arc, which is now established. I think that's officially the seventh hook at this point. I do like Tucker's thing, though. There's this little tidbit. Oh, sorry, real quick. Archer also says the line, we'll do what we have to, whatever it takes. Again, Archer's arc. Anyways, Tucker has this little tidbit where he talks about how... Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think how to phrase this. What he effectively says is how much he's going to miss to Paul. Now, he doesn't say that, but it's all over him because he's obviously grown fond of her. I don't mean romantically, although whatever. I mean more of a friend thing because the two have grown closer for two seasons, right? And so there's this bit, I figured you'd be the first one to see her out the airlock. And Tripp's response is so casual, but so normal. Nah. And that one line says a lot. Really. But then we get on to the Duras attack, which happens right in the middle of their conversation. So they go up, and they fight off Duras in seconds without effort. This is the point earlier. It's a little too overt. It's almost cartoony. But earlier, the NX-01 got pasted by the ship. Now, granted, it was an ambush, but here they effortlessly defeat the, the, the Klingon ship, which was also during an ambush, I do feel like pointing out. This is the point. This is the whole point of Duras being here. It, it is classic wharf effect, ironically. You establish the new threat by showing how the people deal with the old threat. And now the NX-01 can take on and beat a mid-range Klingon bird on an equal terms, and, well, they're ready. Okay, they've got this. Although they waste a lot of torpedoes. They, they can't replenish those. So maybe don't waste a lot of this. Whatever, whatever. Also, they have enhanced hole plating. That's another one. You know, this would have been a good time to introduce the shields, wouldn't it? Yeah, I know. Hole plating, the enhanced hole plating, is effectively a form of shields. But that's my point, isn't it? Whatever. <clears throat> so, T'Pol comes in. This is actually a nice little tidbit. Archer's trying to reach out to her, basically. Ah, oh, it'll be this. No. Oh, it'll be this. No. It'll be this. No. There's got to be something you're looking forward to back home. Actually, if you think about it, and if you've been following T'Pol's arc through the first two seasons, the answer to that is a pretty definitive no. She has been pushing away from Vulcan for two seasons solid. Now, I know the original intent was her to be part Romulan, and I don't know if this is part of that, but it's clear that she is not a typical Vulcan, and the show has been emphasizing that every single time she interacts with High Command or the, Vul the other Vulcans. So, no, there probably really is nothing she's looking forward to going back home, except maybe her career, which leads to her saying she's going to resign her commission, and Archer's like, you can't. Credit to the episode. This is probably one of the better character pieces in the episode, right up there with some of Trip stuff. This is, I think, actually what I would call the first time Archer and T'Pol reach any kind of actual understanding and mutual respect and friendship. Because Archer, and credit to Bakula, is sincere when he's like, no, you can't do that. I mean, I need you and you're valuable, but this is your career. This is your life. You can't throw this away for us. And in simply showcasing that, he shows that he does actually care. Shows that he cares. 
So credit. I'm with it. But no, she decides to stay, which probably saved everything. <clears throat> so, then they go, and <laughs> they get ambushed by the Klingons. This is the final hurrah for this, and this is a, another good establishing moment, because you know, they have to fight. The action sequence, gotta have the action sequence. Um, the other two Klingon ships veer off because they're terrified of the Expanse. Duras, of course, keeps going because he's an idiot. No, really, that, that is effectively the reasoning, his stupidity. <laughs> and, you know, if this was a real Klingon ship, I could see the other Klingons using this as an excuse to kill him and removing him from a command. Because remember, that's kind of how Klingon internal ship politics work. Not just for the purpose of advancement, you know, because skullduggery, but because it's actually kind of a Klingon's duty to remove someone from command if they feel they are unfit for command. Like, that's how the structure works. And Duras is taking them into the Expanse in a quest for personal revenge. I mean, think about it. That being said, they then zoom around and destroy the ship. Duras is dead. Now, why am I pausing to talk about this moment? This is unusual for this point in Star Trek history. Late Voyager kind of had this problem. Well, Voyager in general kind of had this problem. TNG had this problem towards the end there. But Enterprise has really had this problem. They have this thing where they don't destroy their enemies. They don't defeat their enemies. They just kind of disable them and move on or talk through them or whatever. Here, they destroy the ship and kill all the Klingons on board. Bam. This has the same general impact as another major destruction of a ship. Although it is obviously far less impacting, but the intent is the same. The destruction of the USS Odyssey over in DS9 in the episode The Jem'Hadar. This is an attempt to show the new tone and the new stakes, and showing that they're serious this time. Now, whether this works or not is obviously going to depend on you, but it's also going to depend on how they land it. But it is a good showcasing. It's a good way of establishing the difference in tone. And I do remember seeing this episode and being and noticing that and being like, huh. Now it wasn't more it, it wasn't quite as impacting as the Odyssey because I was into DS9 and I was like, oh my god. But um in this case it is still a Huh. Wonder where they're going with that. And thus they go into the expanse, end of season two. We will see how well season three holds up. I am exceptionally curious. I hope you've enjoyed. I'll see you next time.